thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. You can also support the show through Patreon with either a one-time or a recurring donation to help pay for various parts of the show. You can purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks over on the Teespring store. So check it out. My name is Anders Halverson, and our guest today is Daniel Bianchi. Daniel is Assistant Professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at UCLA. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you. Great uh, being here. So you came to my attention because you just wrote, or I guess it wasn't, it was published in 2021, a paper titled Estimating Global Biomass and Biogeochemical Cycling of Marine Fish with and Without Fishing, which does what it says, uh, which is interesting, but also gets into the effects of fish, marine fish, and fisheries on climate change. And that's not... The way I usually think about fish, usually I think of the effects that climate change is going to have on fisheries, but this paper flips that on its head and it talks about the effects that fishing and fisheries, marine fisheries, are having on climate change. So can you just sort of tell us about how you got interested in this topic and and we'll then get into the particulars? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so first of all, I should say that this, uh, <clears throat> this is work with, uh, with many collaborators. They're listed in the paper. Uh, and we started this, we, we started to think about uh, global fisheries quite a while ago. I actually have a first, <laughs> the first notes and draft of the paper is from 2015. Oh, so it wow. has a long time <laughs> to get to the final form that you see here. And there has been contribution by many people on the way. Uh, at the time, so my background is ocean biogeochemical modeling. So it's try to understand the interaction between ocean cir- circulation, so the climate uh, of the ocean, and marine life. And um, uh, for my PhD and my research, I focus mostly on microbes uh, and a little bit on zooplankton. So, you know, tiny krill and uh, uh, copper pods that can move around and uh, utilize primary production and they entered the cycles of nutrients and carbon in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we were also starting to think about uh, fish, partly as a resource for humankind, but also partly as an integral component of marine ecosystems. And so we had developed a, a model. So the approach that I use is a combination of numerical models that basically integrate everything we know in a consistent picture of the ocean, uh, but those observations. And at the time, we were developing a model of fisheries to try to understand fisheries. And we realized there were many, many things we didn't know about global fisheries. And one thing we didn't know that was necessary to, to develop this model was the abundance, the total abundance of fish in the ocean. And some, it was something shocking at the time uh, to realize we, we we didn't know very well how much fishes in the ocean. And so that, right. that's, that's, what, that's what sort of shocked me is here you came along with this idea for a paper to talk about the biogeochemical effects of fish. And first you have to start at the very, at the very beginning and try to figure out how many fish there are in the ocean, as they say, right? Exactly. So I, I should <laughs> uh, characterize my statement and say that uh, we know a lot about fish for assessed uh, stocks. So stocks that are 
fish, then uh, I'm sure your your listeners, your audience will, will know that even better than I do. So there are stock assessments that tell us for selected stocks uh, how much how much individuals, how much biomass there is, and uh, and how much is extracted every year. But what we didn't know at the time, and our approach was really a global uh, a global approach. So we want a sort of full ocean ecosystem level uh, characterization of fisheries, and we didn't know. Uh, <laughs> you can try to sum up all the all the assessed stocks, but that that doesn't tell you the full story. There are many stocks that are not assessed. Assessments are kind of limited to certain regions and fish tend to move around. And then there is the big, big unknown of the open ocean. So waters that are offshore enough that maybe are not uh, as assessed or as characterized as as more coastal waters. So the first thing that we had to do is start to (laughs) look in the literature and start to think how we could estimate how much fish are out there, not just in coastal water, but in the entire ocean. And only then we could start thinking about their effect on biogeochemistry that comes from the material that is cycled through this biomass. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how do you go about that? Well, uh, you can. There are many ways you can you can try to do that. It's a very very hard uh, problem, and and so the first thing we, we we try to do is look in the literature and see what the assessment had been. And again, I should say we it was it's a little bit of a parallel effort as compared to the much more detailed stock assessment because we want to get to this ecosystem level. And so we we do have a figure in the paper, one of the first figures, where we try to say. Looking at what people have done in the past, these these are estimates of total biomass of fish in the ocean. And that's the sort of first figure. And and what shocked me at the time is that the the range is uh, on the order of two orders of magnitude. There is an uncertainty of about 100 times. And again, I should say, uh, when when I say fish, I, I, I... I use that in a in a little bit of a <laughs> encompassing sense, uh, broad sense. So it's not just fish proper, so teleos, but it, it includes uh, larger animals, so larger than zooplankton, animals that can move around. Things could be could be including squids or larger organisms. It's mostly fish, uh, does but it, uh, but it does it, not include whales and and mammals. Or <sighs> we did not include that explicitly. Their biomass is probably not as large as the as the smaller uh, things mm-hmm. okay there are there are quite <laughs> there are strong differences between vertebrates that are for example they work at a higher temperature than than because they are mm-hmm. um, warm blooded uh, and so our models for example do not include um, those organisms okay. and the estimates that i look at they do not explicitly include um, things like uh, marine mammals okay but you do include uh, squid so we do include squid in our model. Some of these estimates that I that I that we look looked in the literature uh, include them. Some do not. Uh, so it's also very tricky when you compare published estimates. You don't want to do an apple to oranges comparison. Yeah. We try to do to put them on the same footing, and that's <laughs> a calculation that we did. But again, even even doing this exercise, the uncertainty remains. Even yeah. when we try to do the best yeah. uh, synthesis, the, the uncertainty remains. And so since, since we were developing a model of fishery, we thought we can, we can contribute to this, uh, to this debate uh, by providing our own estimates. And is a sort of uh, model-based estimate. Uh, our model was developed to uh, study fisheries, to, 
So the, the amount of fish that is removed from the ocean every year by human activities. And we did a very thorough job constraining this quantity. And if we trust the model underpinnings, which are based on ecological theory, we could then uh, use the model to, to also look at the amount of fish that is in the water, the biomass of fish that supports this fishery. So we, we got to the biomass a little bit indirectly. We tried to get an ecosystem model for the entire ocean. We tried to constrain the amount that is uh, fished out, so the, 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 the extractive, extractive activities. And if we, trust, <laughs> if we trust the model and we trust how much is produced every year, we can trust the, the quantity that is in fact there to sustain this feature. And so we get to this number indirectly. So you took some estimates of the sort of targeted fish species, commercial fisheries yeah. are hopefully reasonably accurate. So you, am I correct that you started with those and then worked towards non-target fishes that we don't know so much about yeah, based on the... that. uh, that's okay. a that's an excellent point so if you think about what observations you have to constrain global biomass of fish uh there are scientific surveys uh trolls but but, but they are very uh local they are quite limited uh, in my mind one of the few truly global uh, set of observations that we have is the amount of fish that is caught uh, this is something that is quantified. The FAO uh, keeps track of the numbers. Many, many scientists um, use this number to, uh, to constrain how much fish is extracted. Uh, we know that there are uh, discarded, there are bycatches, there are unreported um, uh, catches. And so this is a global number um, that has been studied a, a lot by, by many people. And so we tend to trust um, the global catch. Uh, and it's global. So it comes from all ocean basins, coastal regions, open ocean. And it's really a, 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 an amazing quantity to constrain global models. So that was our starting point, the quantity that we trust. Mm -hmm. Even though there is obviously uncertainties, uh, we, we, that was our target for our model simulations. Gotcha. Uh, and once we get that, then we can backtrack the biomass. And then the model can also tell us the uh, cycling rate through this biomass. Right. Okay. So, um, how many fish are there in the ocean? <laughs> well, I have to look it up in our paper. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, the, if you look at the at the big uh, at the range, is something between half uh, gigatons, so that's a billion tons up to 50. So th this is the, the full range that, that we find in the literature. Our number is relatively high. So, uh, uh, so it's about 10 um, gigaton of uh, biomass. Um, okay. And, and uh, if, if I remember correctly, we tried to give a sense of uh, how big this number is. And it, it came to something like 20 times all the biomass of humankind, <laughs> of all the people <laughs> on Earth, so 20 times more is fish. Which at the time I thought I, I was shocked to think about how many humans yeah, are. Yeah, that is only, amazing. You're <laughs> only right. few, few in terms of biomass than fish. We really grew to a to a to a massive force, and that kind of relates to the other topic of the paper, which is the the impact on the on the global Earth system cycles that humans are are having. Right. All right. Before we get to that, so or or on that note, I guess. Given our your estimate today of ten gigatons, yes, 
how does that compare to the amount of fish in the sea prior to industrial fishing? Right. This is a this is another excellent question, and is is a is <laughs> a tough question. We I, I can tell you what our model suggests. We and, and that's a number that is quite consistent with with also stock assessments. So for the fish that are targeted by fisheries, so the ones that we catch, we get about half today as compared to the to the maximum, the, what we call the pre-industrial or pre-fisheries or pristine ocean. Even though there is not such a thing as really a pristine ocean, there there have always been change uh, in the ocean, and it's been for for even hundreds of years there have been a human influence. So I would say about half is a typical number. Even from fishery sciences, science we know that uh, if you target a fishery in a in the most effective way and you reach the maximum sustainable yield, mm-hmm. the biomass that sustains that tends to be around half of the pristine biomass. And of course, this is a gross overestimate and it depends on the stock, on the region and so forth. But we get a number that is comparable. So for targeted fish, we estimate about half okay. uh, at, the, at the time of the peak uh, catches, which is was reached in, in the mid-90s. Today, the catch, the global catches have stabilized a little bit and might potentially be going down. So we use as, as our reference period, the mid-90s were global cats uh, at a peak. Mm-hmm. At that time, we estimate about half for the targeted fishers. But then we know that another, our model suggests that only half of the biomass in the ocean is actually exploited or the species are exploited. This is a very, very uncertain number. I would love to know <laughs> what it is, uh, you know, in reality, the observation. This is a model estimate. It's consistent with other studies. So about you know, only a fraction of the of the of the biomass is targeted. We estimate is something around half. So there is half of the biomass that is not directly targeted um, that is potentially still there. And then of the targeted fishes of the targeted fish species, we estimate a decline by about half. So, what does that mean for the non-target species? Um, how have they changed from pre-industrial fishing to the, today? That's an excellent question, and I. I really, I genuinely don't know, and I would love to know the answer. The models that we use are very simple. So our model specifically does not consider explicitly trophic interaction. It's really, the model is really an ecosystem level mass budget. But you can imagine that as we remove certain stocks or or, or we reduce certain stocks, other other species that are not targeted might do better. Might increase. Or yeah. might worse. There are all these feedback within the ecosystem that are very complex, uh, trophic cascades. It's something that yeah. I'm sure fishery scientists and biologists love, but they are very, very hard to quantify. So we really cannot speak for those processes, but I do think it's, it's central. We are altering the ecosystem. And so we are altering all these interactions. And so, yes, we have removed a certain fraction of uh, biomass, how that has affected no- the rest of the ecosystem to me is one of the big unknowns. And we, we are very clear in our paper that this is where research should go. It's already going there, but it's a hard, hard problem. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. So regardless, we have to come up with some estimate, which you did. And then let's let's move on a little bit. So what is the impact of these fish on uh, the biogeochemical cycles and specifically on carbon? And in relation to, to right. climate change. 
this is a this is again another another big question. Um, it's actually a question that is gaining a lot of traction today. So I've seen our paper came out at the same time as a few other studies that really try to 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 if not answer the question, but really ask the question: What is the importance of fish for global carbon cycle? And there have been a lot of studies that are very local in nature. For example, a lot of work has gone into coral reefs where we know fish tend to feed in the coral reef, but then to move horizontally. And so they transport, they can transport nutrients to coral reef. Mm -hmm. So there is an impact of fish on biogeochemistry that has been um, quantified and in many other ecosystems, but it's always been at, at a relatively small scale. And so the question that we had is what is the ocean level, the, really the basin scale uh, perturbation in uh, in the cycles of carbon and nutrients that, it, that 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 is caused by fisheries? And to answer that, first you want to understand what's, what's the actual role of fish in the unperturbed biogeochemistry. Mm -hmm. And this is again a, a, a huge question. Uh, th there is not as, ma as many fish in the ocean as there is phytoplankton. Mm -hmm. Phytoplankton are the tiny algae that um, fix carbon dioxide. They use you know, um, energy from the sun and, and really start the, the cycles of carbon and nutrients. So that's, that's, a, that's a, a the largest number in the carbon cycle is about, I think, 50 uh, <laughs> gigaton of carbon per year fixed by phytoplankton every year. So fish probably uh, uh, cycle a small proportion of all the carbon that is fixed every year. We estimate in the paper something on the order of a few percent uh, of all the carbon that is fixed every year manages to, to, to get into the, um, to, to go through the food web and, and be cycled by fish. So 4% okay. might be a small number, but it's actually not, it's actually substantial. It's one of the numbers we would like to know. Uh, partly because as we perturb, the carbon cycle, we, we are already observing perturbation of the order of few percent. So that's a that's an anchoring number for, for climate change studies. Even few percent perturbation might matter. Mm -hmm. uh, but also fish have <laughs> the ability of, uh, of export, for example, carbon very effectively into the deep ocean. So if you think about phytoplankton, when they die, they might start sinking and transporting carbon in deep layers, but they are very small they produce very small particles. So they don't sink very deep in the ocean. Mm -hmm. But when a fish uh, feed on zooplankton, they can produce uh, larger particles. These are fecal pellets that are even few millimeters in diameters. And these are really particles that sink several hundred, even a kilo hundred meters per day or even a kilometer per day. So if you have a school of fish that is basically packaging zooplankton or phytoplankton into fecal pellet, mm -hmm. every day they can. Uh, shunt this carbon uh, several kilometers into the deep ocean. So one of the quantities that we focus on this paper, and there are many, many ways in which fish can interact with biogeochemistry. But here we wanted to provide one example or one quantity that we can maybe quantify better than others. And this is the carbon sequestration into the deep ocean, mm -hmm. um, potentially caused by uh, the activity of uh, fish and larger animals. Yeah. So the impact, even though the fish may only consume or the, a small percentage of the total carbon that's fixed by the phytoplankton, 
their impact is in terms of climate change is much and the carbon cycle is much larger because they're like you said I like that they package they package the carbon as fecal pellets that then get down to the bottom of the ocean where it's not going to be re-released whereas much of the carbon that's fixed by the phytoplankton gets re-released back into the system that that's exactly right so we did a first we did a simple calculation um just by knowing how quickly the average particle sinks and by how quickly the a typical fecal pellet sinks. And we saw that even if you have a much smaller production of fecal pellet at the surface, relative relatively to the to the smaller phytoplankton particles or the marine snow, as you go deeper, the effect becomes uh, more and more important. So by 200 meter depths, uh, fish fecal pellet might be twice as important as they were at the surface. And by the time you get to a thousand meter, disamplification um, of, of their, their specific or their relative importance is about five times. So there is this, as you go deeper, fast sinking particle become more and more important. And we look at the horizon of a thousand meter because as you, as you said, the deeper you sequester carbon, uh, the, the longer it will stay uh, in, in the deep ocean away from the atmosphere. So it's really a, a long-term sequestration uh, of carbon that is removed um, from the surface where it, it could exchange with the atmosphere. Now, what about location-wise? I would I assume that most of our fisheries and a lot of fish are not actually in the open ocean where their fecal pellets will be able to sink thousands of meters, that they're actually on the shallower areas around the coast. So how does that factor in? That's, a, that's an excellent question. It's something that <laughs> gives us a lot of thought. So the, the, the picture that I discussed works much more effectively in the open ocean. And there are open ocean fisheries or even coastal fisheries that are sitting, imagine like a um, Peruvian upwelling system, even though it's very coastal, the depth there is, is already thousands of meters because of the, the shape of the ocean bottom. But then there are a lot of fisheries that are much more coastal. So with our model, we, we, we were not separating bottom fish from surface fish in, a, in an explicit way. Now it's something that, we are starting to do, uh, and other groups are doing. So <laughs> we might be able to update our estimates, considering that there are fish that are closer to the bottom and fish that are closer to the surface. But in general, this, this effect of packaging carbon and shunting it to the sediment will still be there. So the, the, the challenge is to estimate how long you can sequester this, this material, both in the open ocean and maybe in a much shallower uh, region. So I would say this to me is a one of the definitely one of the next steps. Try try to regionalize uh, our estimates. What we wanted to do is I hope we convey the sense that these numbers are very uncertain, but it's something that we should start uh, thinking about um, more carefully and and, and invest uh, time and research. And the idea is really that fish and, and, and animals are an integral part of the, of the earth system and, and the cycles. And yet in the most earth system models, they don't incorporate anything the size of fish. Is that right? Correct. So even the state of the art global earth system models that are used today to project climate change in the future, think, for example, of these very complex earth system models that are used by the IPCC, uh, to tell us what the temperature will be, where the carbon is going to go, um, that we emit in the atmosphere. We know that part of that goes into the, the biosphere on land, but part of that goes into the ocean. 
So all of these models have a very simple representation of the marine ecosystem. And it's a representation that is evolving. So today, the best ones uh, represent multiple groups of phytoplankton, so smaller and larger. Uh, some models include zooplankton. The best one might include smaller and larger zooplankton. But none of these models includes anything larger than something like a krill, uh, so a small centimeter scale zooplankton. Um, there are studies with these models that are beginning to do um, what-if scenarios. So, uh, you know, what if there are fish that sequester carbon? What if there are fish that migrate vertically in the water column? Do they transport material? So mm-hmm. we're starting to do the, uh, and, and there have been a, even a few simple study of uh, what if we remove some of the, some of the fish from the ocean, how that, how does that cascade down to the nutrient cycles and the carbon cycle? So there are simple tests that we have done. I would say it's a long way before we can include all these processes that relate to fish into these, uh, into these global models because of the ecosystem interactions. Those are, those are not very well understood. So that things like trophic cascades, what happens if you remove large predators? How does that cascade down to the zooplankton and the phytoplankton? I think the models we have now are very simple, perhaps too simple to capture that complexity. And so I, w- I would say our, our work uh, really <laughs> is one, one, one small step towards including the effect of fish in, in these global ecosystem models, and then potentially look at the future evolution and the climate change implications. And so I, I recognize that, as you've pointed out, there's a lot of uncertainty, and a big part of this paper is pointing out that there's a lot of things we don't know and we need to know. But, you know, how much impact could the marine fisheries have on these climate change models? Is it big enough that we need to care or can we safely ignore it? <laughs> that, that's a, again, that's a million dollar question, or probably even more if you think about all the, all the investment in carbon cycle science. So the point we want to make with the paper is that it's a quantity that even just considering the, this um, fecal pellet effect, this carbon pump that sequestered carbon from the surface, even just this, 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 this aspect of, of the ecosystem has the potential to alter things like deep carbon sequestration or even deep oxygen cycle uh, by several percent. So we say the total carbon sequestered by targeted fish is something like 10% of the deep carbon sequester. If you start altering that, you can imagine that you have perturbation of a few percent of these inventories. But these but are numbers. Go through those numbers again, just so I'm clear. So you're saying. <laughs> but so the, there is an amount, for example, there is an amount of carbon that we can quantify that is sequestering the deep ocean by biological processes. Mm-hmm. So carbon partly dissolves in colder water and, and enters the deep ocean as a physical process. But then but the biological pump, so the sinking of organic material in the deep ocean sequester an additional uh, amount of carbon. So that's what we call the biological carbon sequestration. It's essential to lower CO2 from the atmosphere, in the atmosphere. So if we just look at that biological sequestration in the deep ocean, we estimate that roughly 10% could be caused by the fast sinking fecal pellet. So if if the ecosystem has this function of producing fast sinking fecal pellets, that's not a negligible 
proportion of the of the deep ocean carbon sequestration. And the million dollar question is how much are we altering that proportion because of fisheries, because of climate change, but also because of um, ecosystem interaction, like trophic cascades that might have altered not just the fish, but also zooplankton and phytoplankton. Right. So right. I cannot tell you, right, right, I, don't, I don't think we have enough understanding of the system to know exactly how much the ocean has been perturbed how much of the carbon cycle has been perturbed by fisheries. But what the point that we make in the paper is that has the potential of not being negligible. And it's something that we should quantify and in the future include in our system models. Right. So if the oceans are responsible for absorbing three or four gigatons of carbon every year, and if we're trying to get to a point where we can sequester 10 gigatons of carbon per year if we want to forestall the worst effects of climate change, then even if even a few percentage points here and there is pretty important and pretty huge. And then especially when you consider that it might have spiraling effects, for example, as I think you point out in the paper, climate change could then drive further reduction in the number of marine fish, which then spirals back itself and provides a feedback loop. Right. So there are, that's an essential point. There are all these uh, connection between different components of the, of the earth and climate system. And some of these are in the ocean. And so you're right. So we're, we're discussing, you know, every year there are few, you know, three gigaton of carbon entering the ocean. That's because atmospheric CO2 is increasing and it dissolves more. But then there is this reservoir of a thousand uh, gigaton sitting in the deep ocean that is sequestered because of the biological pump. So we we do not want to mess with this Mm -hmm. natural ability of the ocean to sequester carbon. And my my concern and the concern that we have is that uh, we are altering the ecosystem in ways that we don't fully fully understand, but they certainly impact this ability of sequestering carbon. And so global warming, as you said, is, is changing primary production, is potentially going to change um, fisheries as well. Uh, we know that fish stocks and species are moving around following uh, the temperature and oxygen changes. So there are big changes going on. How, how do these impact the ability of the ocean to sequester carbon, it's exactly what we are trying to quantify here. Well, I I think it's really fascinating to think in these terms, because that is not usually the way I think about fish. Usually I think about the effect of global climate change or climate change on on the fish and not the fish on the climate change. So it's a really interesting perspective. I I agree. I, I, you know, I come from the climate, climate community. And so I have exactly the same, um, you know, the same starting point as you, but the, the the exciting part of this study was thinking about the feedback, thinking about the the connection, the two ways connections, and I it's something relatively new. I would say, you know, if I it, it makes sense to focus, for example, on phytoplankton because those are the main driver of the ocean biogeochemical cycles. But today, you know, in the last few years, uh, I've seen a flurry of papers starting to think about fish and 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 their impacts. On, on the biogeochemistry, potentially on the phytoplankton, potentially on the carbon sequestration, but really we are, we are adding 
pieces and understanding to to uh, to to our picture of the of the of the oceanic cycles and again i would say that um fish are are, are major players they, they really have top down controls and the potentially connection to the biogeochemistry uh that 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 are important so what's next what's the next paper going to be <laughs> so well <laughs> We are still working on uh, on this topic. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, the model we started this 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 work several years ago, about you know more than five years ago. Right. And this is reflected in the in the in the way we constructed the, this model. So, uh, we we were we, we were at the time we were modeling all fish as a as a, you know we were not separating, uh, for example, uh, fish that live uh, in proximity. To the bottom of the ocean from fish that live at the surface. So, I think right now we are developing these components. So we are uh, trying to separate uh, these two parts of the oceanic food web. So, what we call epipelagic fish from demersal fish. Mm-hmm. We have numbers that allow us to constrain, you know, these two parts of the food web. We have catches for for surface fish. We have catches for demersal. Generally. Uh, we tend, tend to catch a little more demersal fish. Uh, so we have ways of, of uh, evolving our model and, start, and start, start addressing some of the uncertainties that we lay out. Um, I'm also quite excited about the food web of the ocean in general. So even without considering fisheries, what, are, what is the potential for this um, trophic cascade? So mm-hmm. we are using more complex models that really... Uh, represent the, the entire spectrum of sizes, so the entire food web, in a in a much more complex way that allow us to uh, to say, you know, if I remove large predator, what are the cascading effect on smaller predators down to potentially uh, phytoplankton and zooplankton, and how does that work in a in a very dynamical environment uh, such as the ocean? So you're you're doing both, then you're sort of improving the model and you're trying to parameterize it a little bit better. correct so we are exactly so we are evolving the model to 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 represent to 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 address some of the uncertainties we identify but also understand the first principles and put and how we can uh extrapolate in in my mind you know that we will probably not be able to to do climate projections with the most complex uh, food web models of the oceans, just because they are very computationally expensive. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is do, you know, regional studies or what we call process studies to understand the effects and potentially, as you said, parametrize them. So represent them in a simplified way that captures the the nature of the process in the more complex models that then we can use for projection. So there is always this two way, you know, exchange between more complex models. Right. And, and models like you can use for, for things like projection. Well, I should ask, maybe we should be clear, what kind of model did you use for this? So all our paper is based on, on, a, on a model that we developed at the time I was at McGill University. So I should, there were a few collaborators, Eric Galbraith was a professor at McGill University, Montreal, David Carrasso was a student at the time. So we developed this model called uh, BOATS. <laughs> Don't ask me about the acronym. <laughs> Something about bio. <laughs> I forgot the acronym. But that was the simplified model that is basically 
as a simplified um, representation of the ecosystem and fish. They depend on primary production and temperature, and the model tracks the biomass accumulation as a function of the fish size. Okay. And, we, and we also develop an economic component that allowed us to, to basically simulate fishing effort and catches and compare the model to, to observation of cats. So that's the simplest model that we have. I should say there are many groups that are working on this model. So we are part of this uh, fish MIP project. You might maybe have heard of that. Is the fisheries model intercomparison project. Mm. Many other groups, so, uh, we, we, we did a couple of studies to really take multiple ecosystem models and do uh, a set of uh, projections for future uh, fish biomass. And so we had a couple of studies uh, global synthesis where everyone contributed their model under the same future scenarios of climate change. And we actually saw that our projection, our ensemble projection is a reduction in fish biomass by about 15% by the end of the century under a business as usual scenario. So that's the type of things you can do with the simplified models. And we are not the only ones doing that we are actually collaborating in big collaboration and then there are the more complex models if you want i can <laughs> tell you more about that well so beyond that will fisheries models like this and your study be incorporated into the earth system models that the ipcc is using and and things like that anytime in the near future i <laughs> i think we are at least a decade away if not if not longer but this is just a wild guess you know same 10 years is probably <laughs> safe okay. enough. I should say that in the last IPCC assessment report, I think in um, the working group, sec, um, working group two that, that, uh, that looks at, um, among other things, at ecosystem effects, they do report our results. So we have already okay. <laughs> contributed results uh, to these big uh, international assessments of, of, uh, of impacts uh, of climate change. And I should say these are these are really the results of this uh, fish MIP uh, collaboration. So it's many many groups. It, it was a huge effort. It took us several years to basically sit together. We have we developed these models in, in different ways. We have different scientific questions, but all of them can be used potentially to project changes in fish biomass in the future. And so we had to design a protocol to really be able to compare the model. So do simulation that could be comparable. But it was a very, I would say, I mean, obviously I was involved, but I think it was a successful effort. We were able to, 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 to really propose ensemble estimates in, in a similar way as climate scientists tell us, you know, ensemble estimates of warming into the future. So we were able to um, suggest estimates of, of decline in biomass due to climate change in the ocean, biomass of fish. Uh, and those enter the, the 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 IPCC report, and so we are continuing to to evolve the models. We are very aware of the limitation, and, and the ultimate goal is potentially have much more integrated representation of fisheries within the Earth system models. But again, I, I should say that in my mind, this is at least a decade uh, away, gotcha. if not longer. And the other the other flip of the coin is the is the observational counterpart. So. We were not the only group who were struggling to find observations that were good enough to constrain global 
fish mm-hmm. marine ecosystem model. It's really hard. And today there are a lot of uh, effort going into this sort of synthesis. We have observation and many small scale. How do we produce a global picture of uh, things like biomass of fish uh, that we can then use to, to constrain these models? Big, exciting effort, and it is a, is a, is a, is an exciting time to, to be working on this topic. Yeah, it's just amazing how, how little we know after all this time, isn't it? Es- especially for the ocean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, there is a running joke in the fishery science community that observing fish is easy. It's like observing trees, except that you cannot see them and they move around. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, but but you make a good point. So the ocean, I mean, we know that is the, that is one of the in the earth system is one of the frontiers of observation. It's really hard to observe, you know, the middle of the ocean or the southern ocean, and what happens below the surface is also is also very hard to observe. But where you know the technology is improving, the the science is piling up. So so there is definitely um, advances and, and and new directions. Well, thank you, Daniel, for taking the time to explain all of this to someone like me. I appreciate it. And I can't wait. I guess I do I have to wait another six years to read your next <laughs> your next paper? I mean, for, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, some of these studies take, take time. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> thank you, because this was a, was a lot of fun. So we usually ask five questions, but I'm going to I'm going to shorten that because we're running out of time. First of all, do you have a favorite fish? Oh, <laughs> I love them all. Um, I do have a, <laughs> for a while, I've been obsessed by uh, lantern fish because it's, it's just something we really don't know much about. And, and my colleagues uh, are telling me that those are the most abundant uh, fish in the ocean. If not lantern fish, other mesopelagic fish that live, you know, in the twilight zone. Oh, that's those are interesting. Did Those you say the they're most, the most abundant? Yeah, there are some studies that suggest that uh, they are really the most abundant vertebrate on Earth, and wow. and these are, might not be lantern fish. There might be other small right. mesopelagic fish. The lantern fish they are very exciting because every day they migrate to the surface, mm. and now they migrate to the surface, and then they go down uh, several hundred to a thousand meter, and so they 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 really uh, transport material. They they they. They are. They just have a very interesting uh, life cycle and behavior, and they are not very well understood. It's something we don't fish now, but there are mm-hmm. talks of expanding mesopelagic fisheries. Huh. They're not very good to eat, <laughs> but they can be used for fish meal or or other other purposes. And uh, and we simply don't know much about their ecosystem and biogeochemical role. So that's one of the. F- <laughs> to me, is one of the iconic fish of the of the ocean that we don't know much about, but they might be really, really important. Wow, yeah. that's an excellent answer. So not and they're and they're cool looking to to boot oh, on top of their yeah. biogeochemical importance and everything exactly. else. And you ask you ask about a single fish. I'm to- tell, telling you about an entire you know. Diverse <laughs> group of fish, but right, are, I like it. They are you know, incredible. They have incredible adaptation. I mean, imagine. They live uh, in darkness half of the time. They come to, well, most of the time, they come to the surface. They are bioluminescent. Okay. Um, now I'm going to ask you the last question, which I think is important. If there is one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a you know, as I as a as a earth scientist, as a as an oceanography, I, I you know, I would love everyone to know how important the ocean is for the earth's um, for the earth's well-being, for the well-being mm-hmm. of the global ecosystem and humankind and that we are not a species that is separate from from the from the global ecosystem we are really part of a bigger system that we are under beginning to understand now but we are just a small piece and and we have an outsized effect but we do not understand the consequences so i you know i i wish everyone thought about <laughs> People and humankind as an integral part of the global ecosystem that has an important effect, but also we need to maintain a certain balance. Uh I think that's an excellent point. Well, thank you again, Daniel, and um, best of luck to you. I look forward to reading more about this. Thank you. Okay, well, I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. My name is Anders Halverson, and my guest today has been Daniel Bianchi from the UCLA Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences. If you want to get in touch with Daniel, you can find him pretty easily just by looking up his webpage at UCLA. And I will also be sure to put his email address in the show notes. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or you can stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can buy some awesome fisheries podcast swag over on Teespring. Thank you for listening. And remember to loosely paraphrase Daniel's main point. You can take the organism out of the ocean, but you can't take the ocean out of the organism. Mm -hmm.